Life consists of more than sunshine, green fields, lapdogs and pussycats. It also has tempests and earthquakes, volcanoes and hurricanes. Nothing that we can see or touch is stable. Physical comforts can be torn away. Health is not unmovable. Wealth is not a lasting kingdom. Investments can be lost through someone's bankruptcy. Property? That's as unstable as water. Stability is not to be found beneath the moon. Yet men are ever building on the quicksands of earth. Even the ancient empires have come and gone. Coming close to home, many of our friends and some of our loved ones have been taken. Sometimes entire families are swallowed up by sudden accident. Besides these outward things, Cherished beliefs can be shaken and taken. They disappear from time to time. Some of the doctrinal accumulation of the years is swept away by more intense Bible study. It has been so in every age. In the first century of our era, Judaism was being shaken. Paul seemed to be saying that Christianity, a new movement, would repudiate the temple, the sacrificial system, and so on. Of course, that's not what he was really saying. He was saying that these things had now met their substance, that the shadows had come to the reality. But it seemed to the Jews of his age that Paul was shaking up everything that could be shaken. At such a time, Hebrews 12 and verse 26 was written. Let me read it to you from the Living Bible. By this, God means that he will sift out everything without solid foundations, so that only unshakable things will be left. The writer of Hebrews had just quoted an Old Testament passage about the shaking of things that exist. And now he interprets it by saying that this Old Testament verse implies that God intends to shake out everything that doesn't have a solid foundation so that only those things that cannot be shaken might remain behind. This has been the course of church history in every age. We've mentioned it was so for Judaism. It was so in the 16th century when Luther shook the Roman Catholic Church. It was true in the 18th century when Wesley shook the established Church of England. It is continually true, for as the Bible is studied more and more, it yields new truth and ancient superstitions must be surrendered. Coming events cast their shadows before. The Church of God will be terribly shaken by the second advent of Christ, by the last great judgment day. And so before that time, God in tenderest mercy shakes the Church and shakes believers to be sure they are settled on an immovable foundation. One only has to read the last parables of Christ as they are found in the 25th chapter of Matthew. They're all about judgment on the church. But right through the years, God is judging the church, for to whom much is given, much is expected. Privilege and peril always go together. But remember, all these shakings are in love, whether it's the shakings of possessions or loved ones or beliefs. Charles Spurgeon once said, I do not think times of storm to a church are in the long run to be regretted. A calm is much more dangerous. 
the plague bearing miasma, settles and festers in the vale till the atmosphere becomes deadly, even to the casual passenger. But the storm leaps from the mountains into the sunny glades of the valley. With terrific violence, it hurls down the habitations of men and tears up the trees by the roots. But meanwhile, all is superabundantly compensated for by the effectual cleansing that the atmosphere receives. Men breathe more freely, and heaven smiles more serenely now that the heaviness of the death damp is gone and the poisonous vapour clings no longer to the river's bank and the valley's side. Well, that's worth considering, is it not? This pronouncement by Spurgeon that times of storm to a church are not in the long run to be regretted. It's true for individuals too, my friend. The Bible speaks about having unshakable, immovable foundations. The first commandment says we're to love the Lord our God only as God. There are to be no other gods before him. A shaky bed can't give much comfort. Can't rest on that. A rickety chair, that's just as bad. The danger of the human heart is to continually believe in things that are less than the best, less than true. Conventionally, we admit that Christ is the only foundation, but in actual practice, you and I are tempted to believe in institutions, in creeds, in systems, in doctrines. My friend, that can be dangerous. God does have a church on earth, composed of all that love him indeed. There is such thing as doctrinal truth, but my friend, no one yet has fully understood all of Scripture. The Bible is yet but dimly understood. We have many things to learn, many, many to unlearn. The fact that certain ideas have been cherished by us for years is no evidence those ideas are infallible. Only Christ cannot be moved. All our formulations of truth can be said better. You know, Paul on one occasion said, I count other things but garbage that I might win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is by faith in Jesus. That's Philippians chapter 3. In Jeremiah, God accuses his people of two evils. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you have hewn out broken cisterns that will not hold water. Here are our temptations to forsake the God of heaven to substitute things for him that are no gods. And yet the Bible warns us again and again that if we trust in vanity, we'll become vain, that hail will one day sweep away the refuge of lies. And God called the father of the faithful, Abraham. He sifted him, poured him from vessel to vessel, separated him from all things earthly till he might rest in him alone. I'm turning to Psalm 46 which indicates what should be the spirit of every true Christian. In face of the shakings of life, our losses material, and our losses sometimes that seem to be spiritual losses, what should be our attitude? Listen. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake, in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble 
with its tumult. My friend, whatever else shakes, God is unshakable. He should be our refuge. He should be our strength. Let me read you a similar passage from one of the minor prophets. I'm going to turn to the book of Habakkuk and notice what it says in the last chapter. Though the fig tree do not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Do you see it, friends? Whatever else you lose, the figs, the fruit, the produce of the olive, the fields yielding no food, the flocks being cut off, yet rejoice in the Lord, joy in the God of our salvation, for God the Lord is our strength. It is in the mercy of God that all the shakings of life take place. There is a stable good that comes out of all our present vicissitudes, whether involving churches or individuals. The many shakings of life are God's mercies preparing us for the last great shaking of the advent of Christ and the judgment day of God. Every shaking tears down something of lesser value to bring more to view that which is of unshakable nature. The Gospels, the revolutionary power-challenging superstition, challenging institutions, It destroyed Judaism. It destroyed the Roman Empire. It destroyed the medieval church. It destroyed slavery. It destroyed tyranny. It destroys our personal superstitions, if we are honest. It destroys our false creeds, our vain self-confidences. Did you notice the words of the text again, my friend? By this God means he will sift out everything without solid foundations so that only unshakable things will be left. Now, what are these unshakable things? What are the things that cannot be shaken? I'm going to read the next verse in Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Ah, there it is, the kingdom of God. That cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God. The gospel of God. Romans 14 says God's kingdom is not in food and drink, but in righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God consists of present salvation and future. It consists of the forgiveness of sins, the presence of Christ, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, victorious living over the world, the flesh and the devil being always caused to triumph, always having all sufficiency in all things and abounding to every good work. The promises of God, the love of Jesus, the fellowship of the saints. These, my friends, constitute the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. If you only have those things that can be shaken and moved, soon you'll have nothing. Nothing. If you only have those things that cannot survive scrutiny, go away, mourn and lament. Better still go and stand under the cross. It's planted in the rock of ages. We're to trust in the Christ of the cross, the cross of Christ, and then nothing else can ever shake us. You know, the greatest preacher about the things that cannot be shaken was Paul not even our Lord Jesus. Is that blasphemous? No, my friend. 
Our Lord Jesus came to make the atonement, not to explain it. He raised up Paul to explain the meaning of his cross. What did Paul speak about? He spoke about justification. He spoke about sanctification, imputation, reconciliation, adoption. These are the themes that come from Paul particularly. They have entered Christian language primarily from Paul. All of those terms except sanctification. The expression in Christ or its equivalents occur 165 times in the New Testament. It came originally from Paul. For when we believe we are in Christ, we're in a new era. We belong to another world. We've been translated from this world into the world to come. We have eternal life. That's what it means to be in Christ. So from Paul we took these great words that explain the gospel. Justification. That's a legal term which means that we are no longer accused by the law, that we have been acquitted. It has to do with a righteousness that's imputed to us, not imparted. Imparted righteousness is sanctification, and that's never good enough to meet the law. Paul uses the word gospel four times as much as the rest of the New Testament writers put together. He uses the word grace twice as much as the New Testament writers put together. Yes, God raised up the Apostle Paul to explain to us the meaning of the atonement accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul said about that kingdom, that kingdom which Christ established, my friends, those things cannot be shaken. Don't read them on their own. Never read them apart from the Gospels. For Paul was only explaining the seed thoughts of the Gospels. He does not transcend them in the sense that we do not need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. God forbid. Christ was the purest light that ever shone upon men. He is the way, the truth and the life. But it was Paul who explained the things of Christ in detail, particularly his cross. Now it wasn't easy in Paul's time to get the gospel across. It seemed he was shaking up everything. He was certainly shaking up everybody. He seemed to be downgrading Moses and the law and the church of his day. He seemed to be downgrading the movement that gave him birth. He seemed to be tearing up the landmarks and the foundations. He was saying circumcision wasn't necessary. He took seriously what Jesus said about the old wineskins not being good enough for the new wine. But in reality it was not so. Paul wasn't really tearing up things. He was building up things. He was building up the things that cannot be shaken. He was pointing out that all that had come before was only preparation for the gospel, only scaffolding. Paul preached Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Saviour. He's at the heart of the things that cannot be shaken. I think of the words of Spurgeon when he first began his ministry in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Here they are. I propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked what is my creed, I reply, my creed is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, 
has left a body of divinity, admirable and excellent in its way. But the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system or any other human treatise, but it is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth and the life. What a wonderful way to begin a ministry. That's how Spurgeon began his. His last words, listen. These were the last words of Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. If you wear the livery of Christ, you'll find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest under your souls. He's the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He's always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there's anything that's gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus Christ. Ah, my friend, there's a rock that cannot be shaken. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. So he was the great theme of Paul. As you look at Paul's epistles, they fall into four groups, separated each by about five years. And there are four main topics as Paul expounds the things that cannot be shaken. He speaks first of all about Jesus Christ. I'm not speaking first of all in time, but in importance. In Colossians, his great theme is the person of Jesus. When he deals in Ephesians with the kingdom of God, he speaks about the church of Christ. And he does similarly in Philippians. To the Romans, to the Galatians and the Corinthians, he spoke about the cross of Christ. And to the Thessalonians, in his two letters, Paul spoke about the return of Christ. There are things that cannot be shaken. The person of Christ, the cross of Christ, the church of Christ, the return of Christ. And friend, did you know that Jesus taught about these same things? I'm turning now to Matthew 16. Our Lord on one occasion, towards the end of his ministry, took a three-month holiday with his disciples. A holiday? Well, it was a summer school. He wanted to teach them about his kingdom and the things that couldn't be shaken. And I'm reading to you now from Matthew 16. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There, my friend, you have the foundation of the kingdom that cannot be shaken, the Christ. Then Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, which means a rock. And on this rock, for Peter was one of the stones, at the very foundation of the church, He had expressed the primary foundation of truth, Christ the Son of God. So Jesus says, Peter, it's no coincidence your name means rock or stone. The truth you've uttered is the great foundation of my church. You're going to be a foundation stone. On this rock, I'll build my church and the powers of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, my friends, the question had not been, who are you, Peter? But who am I? And the answer given 
That's the rock foundation of the church. So there's the second thing in this section that cannot be shaken. In the teachings of Jesus, in this summer school, he teaches about his church. Then in verse 21 we read this. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Ah, here we find Christ talking about his cross and our cross. We cannot be members of the Church of Christ without knowing the cross, Christ's and our own. He said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's Luke's rendering of the verse. And then finally in this passage, Jesus says, the Son of Man is to come with his angels and the glory of his Father. Then he repay every man for what he has done. There's the coming of Christ. The Christ, the church, the cross, the coming. Do you see it? The church is made up of all that believe Jesus is the Son of God. Read it there in verses 16 to 18 of Matthew chapter 16. But the church is built on Christ as a sacrifice. That's why he goes on to speak about the cross. My friend, you know there are many churches without power today. It's because they've forgotten the cross. Many of them preach many good things, including the law of God. But the law of God without the cross can save nobody. The church is made up of those that believe in Jesus and those that see he is the Saviour who was sacrificed for them on the cross. But out of that grows another truth. The true church will always pursue holiness of living, sanctification. Every believer must take up the cross. That means accepting God's will rather than our own. That's the cross doesn't mean putting up with your rheumatism or an in-law. It means accepting God's will wherever it clashes with your own. Holiness of living is always to be found in the true church, those that have the true gospel. Liberty is not license. The bondage of the law is only for those that know not the gospel. Those that know the gospel find in the law privilege, opportunity, it has ceased to be bondage for them. And then finally, the coming of Christ. The true church will be an Adventist church proclaiming the coming of the Lord. The whole Bible is filled with the promise of the return of Jesus. For salvation, my friends, takes in society and the body as well as the spirit. So there are the things that cannot be shaken. The Christ, the church, the cross, the coming. My friend, may I recommend to you that some day you read the whole letter from which I first quoted, the book of Hebrews. I'm turning back to one or two things that writer says that helps explain his warning about the things that can be shaken and his promise about what cannot be shaken. I'm reading now from the same book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Here the writer is saying that as the high priest on the day of atonement went into the holy place, the most holy place, through the second veil, so now he is there representing us. And we, ever since that cross, can have boldness and confidence to enter in to the very presence of God, knowing there we have our representative and our substitute, and that as we believe, we have full assurance, for we have eternal life. Our evil conscience is gone because sin's burden is gone. Guilt is no more. Ah, friend, there's something that cannot be shaken. Our presence at the throne of God in Jesus Christ, our representative. Are you there today by simple faith? God grant it. Amen.